Hello and welcome to LifePoint Church's uh, Good Friday message. My name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors at LifePoint Church here in Farmington, Utah. I um, love that we, you're, we have you online. Obviously with the uh, COVID virus, things are a little bit different. We'd love to be meeting in person, but uh, right now um, it's amazing the technology that God has given us in order to be able to do things like this. So welcome. Well, as I mentioned, today is Good Friday. And uh, if you're like me, Good Friday is something that actually, you know, kind of happens every Friday. I, I love Fridays. I also like Saturdays and Sundays as well. Um, but one of my favorite kind of mantras is there's no such thing as a bad weekend or there's no such thing as a bad Friday. But today, this Good Friday is, is a different Friday. It's a special Friday. And the idea of Good Friday uh, is something we're going to look at. And, and in my opinion, it's actually a little bit of a misnomer. It is a Good Friday, but if there's a kind of a, a message for our, uh, our message, a title for our message, it would be Best Friday Ever. Because I think that the Good Friday celebration that we are celebrating is actually a celebration, not just of a Good Friday, but truly of the best Friday that ever has happened in the history of mankind. This Good Friday, this Best Friday, centers around a historical figure. His name is Jesus. This, uh, this Passion season, or this, this Easter season, which we celebrate today, we celebrate uh, Easter Sunday, is a celebration of Jesus. It's not just a time where we open Easter eggs, which, hey, that's fun, but it's a celebration of who Jesus is and what He did. You see, Jesus is different. He is different than anybody else who has ever lived the earth. Roughly 2,000 years ago, Jesus did live. He lived in Israel. But I mentioned he is different. You see, his birth was foretold in the Old Testament hundreds of years before he was actually born. That's pretty different. Not only was his birth foretold, but the Bible refers to him uh, as either being a king or having a kingdom in multiple places. Places like John 18, Matthew 2, and Revelation 19, just to name a few. But this king was celebrated at birth very uniquely. Luke 2 tells us that when Jesus came, rather than coming with all kinds of fanfare like a king or a prince usually would, no, he, he had a little bit of fanfare, and that fanfare was angels from heaven that came down and sang praises to him and worshipped him and told shepherds in the field about him, lowly shepherds. Shepherds weren't the top part of society. In fact, they were some of the bottom. And yet that is who God chose to reveal that his son had come to earth. Jesus was unique. And as we look at Jesus and, and, and the idea of him being unique, we see his earthly ministry. You see, his earthly ministry started about when he was 30. Before that, we don't have a whole lot of details. We know he grew up in a small, remote town of Nazareth, not really a town where anybody that's famous would come from. Uh, and not only that, he, he apprenticed with his dad and, and, and learned to be a, a carpenter. So 
as you have this man who bursts on the scene about 30, his earthly ministry is very unique from what he grew up with. It's not an obscurity. His earthly ministry, we see that Jesus had compassion on the multitudes. He was unique in that he could feed thousands of people from just a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish. He could heal people from sicknesses, all kinds of sicknesses, sicknesses that other people couldn't. He could heal people not even being in the same room with them, but via distance. He was unique in the fact that not only did he heal people, not only did he, he provide for people's needs, he also had amazing teaching. Much of it is, uh, is known worldwide today. And on top of that, he actually had power over death. He raised multiple people from the dead. Now that's one that a lot of people kind of scoff at and say, no, nobody could do that. But Jesus did. Why? Well, because Jesus is unique. And he's unique because he actually was God. We're going to discuss that here in just a second. So we see with Jesus' earthly ministry that he was unique. But at the end of that, what happened? Well, he lived that life and then he died on a cross. He was betrayed by one of his own, Judas Iscariot. All of his disciples abandoned him and he dies on the cross. Now the rest of the story, what Easter Sunday is about, is his resurrection. But that Friday was one of probably the darkest days in the history of mankind. Jesus died on the cross. There are a lot of ideas about that. Some people see this as Jesus', Jesus biggest moment of weakness. Something that was completely unnecessary. Something that he didn't have to do. Well, my friends, that's not correct. As we see this morning, or as we'll see this morning, the cross was absolutely necessary. There's a lot of places we could go for this, but this morning, uh, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament to uh, chapter 53. We're going to look at a couple verses at the end of verse 50, uh, chapter 52, and then go all the way through verse 53 this morning and see what it says about Jesus. This passage was written hundreds of years before Jesus came. In fact, some people have tried to, to find somebody else who could fit this, but there is nobody else who has ever lived or who will ever live that could fit these verses better than Jesus. They are written about him. So I'm going to read these verses and then we're going to walk through them real quick and see exactly what God says about Chapter 52, verse 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of uh, the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, be, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors." As we read that passage, there's probably some, some verses that struck you, some things that, that uh, are very, um, very colorful descriptors. And I, what I want to do for the next couple minutes is just kind of walk through a couple things and, and point out and highlight some things that make this celebration of this Friday, the Friday on which Jesus died on the cross, not just a good Friday, but truly the best Friday ever. So the first thing that we want to see uh, here is we're introduced in verse 13 to this servant. Isaiah is writing to a group of believing Jews in the Old Testament, and they're looking forward to this servant. The servant has already been introduced in chapter 42, 49, 50, and here in 52 and 53, we see this servant. Now, this servant, to uh, give you a spoiler it's Jesus. As we read the rest of the passage, it's pretty clear who is the one who takes iniquity and sin. And this servant, the first thing that we see, Isaiah bookmarks the very beginning and the very end. Verse 13 in chapter 52 and then verse, 13, uh, verse 12 in verse, uh, chapter 53 with this idea that he is exalted. He is lifted high. He is going to accomplish his purpose. Now, since he's a king, that's not all that surprising. But how he does that in the verses in between is something that, that no human could conceive. And it kind of boggles our mind. Look with me at the beginning of chapter 53, kind of verses 1 through 3. We see this passage states, really, again, about Good Friday, about Jesus, that he was what? Well, look at the very end of verse 3. Now let's go to the beginning of verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The truth is, Jesus was rejected. He was despised by his own people. He 
he was rejected by the religious leaders, by the vast majority of people. And quite frankly, he's still rejected by people today. As you go through the gospel account, we see even at the very end, when Jesus is arrested, all of his disciples do what? They scatter. Why? Because they're afraid. They don't want to be seen with the man that's just arrested. We see a couple of them follow behind and, and, and kind of lag behind, but even Peter denies him three times. He was rejected. Why was he rejected by his people? Well, what does it say? Uh, in verse 2, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus didn't look the part of a king that the people wanted. The people wanted a king that would come and would kick out Rome. Rome had conquered Israel, and the Israelites hated it. The Jews hated it. And they were looking for a king who could restore the glory, the glory days of when David was king and Solomon was king. Jesus, he didn't look the part. There was nothing that, when you looked at him, screamed royalty. Back in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel, God's people decided they wanted a king like all the other nations had. They didn't want God to be their king. And so God acquiesced and said, fine. And the people chose Saul. And the Bible tells us they chose Saul for one reason. He looked like a king. He was taller than everybody else. And if you read through 1 Samuel, we see that didn't end well. Saul was not a good king. Just because somebody is, is tall and looks the part doesn't mean they're going to be good. In fact, what is so fascinating about that part is after Saul, the next king is David. But the, the prophet there is Samuel. And Samuel has dealt with Saul and all the bad that King Saul has done. And God sends him to David's household and says, I want you to anoint a new king. And so David's dad, Jesse, brings all of his sons out. And the very first one, Samuel sees him and says, oh, this is the guy that's going to be king. Why? Because he looked the part. And God tells him, no, man looks in the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Jesus had a pure heart. Jesus was different, but the people rejected him because he didn't look like a king. In fact, from what the Bible says, it seems like he, he just looked like a normal guy. He was just a regular dude. And that's not what the people wanted. They rejected him. Next thing that we see is that in verses 4 through 6, next thing about Jesus, it says, Surely has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we were healed. Uh, and then down the ver end of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not only was Jesus rejected and despised, but Jesus did something that was phenomenal and fantastic for us. Not so much for him physically as a human, but it was that he carried our sins. And my friends, that is what Good Friday is all about. That Jesus carried our sins, that he bore our iniquities, that he carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus did that. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves me. That's why. 
What happened to Jesus because he carried our sins? Well, there's a whole lot of things in this passage. Down to verses, let's see, 7, 8, 9 have a bunch. He was oppressed and afflicted. Uh, he, he took the... the, 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 the he was arrested by enemy forces, unjustly accused. In fact, his trial at night was probably extremely illegal. However, when matters are pressing, as you know, the law can be tweaked, bent, changed, uh, and that's what happened. Uh, he, he did not answer when accused. In fact, the charge that Jesus ends up getting crucified on is a blasphemy charge. And at any point in time, Jesus could have said, whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second. I'm not actually God, and he would have got off the hook. And yet, he didn't. Why? Was he crazy? Was he a lunatic? Is he a delusional liar? No, he didn't because he is God. And for him to say, no, 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 I'm not God, I'm not deity, don't do this to me, would meant that he was a liar. He would not have been perfect. He would not have been sinless and could not have actually paid for our sins on the cross. So he did all those things. He was wounded, it says. He was smitten. He was crushed. Uh, up, in verse, uh, up in verse 14, we see many men were astonished at him. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of all children of mankind. Not only was he crucified, but before he was crucified, he was beaten. He was punched. His beard was ripped out. They, they whipped him with a cat of nine tails and just ripped open his back to the point where they didn't probably even look completely human. A gross, horrific scene. And yet that is what he did. And after that beating, then what does the Bible say he did? He died. He died. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 9. He was cut off, cut off out of the land of the living. And they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death. He died. Beaten, crucified, and died. Buried in a rich man's tomb. Something that is prophesied hundreds of years before it actually happened. And something that was not normal. You didn't bury criminals in rich people's graves. And yet it's happened because the Bible said it would. And then if you look down at verse 10, kind of one of the hardest and one of the most amazing verses in the Bible at the same time, it says, uh, and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And you say, goodness gracious, why was it God's will to crush Jesus? Why was it God the Father's will to crush his son? Is, is he unloving? Is this some form of, of divine child abuse? And the answer is, no, it's not. The only way that this makes sense is if some amazing greater good came out of it. And the reality is, it did. Let me use just one little illustration. Sometimes there are people, and this is a terrible illustration, but maybe it'll help get the point across. Sometimes there are people who um, do things that are extraordinary. Uh, maybe it's a soldier who, who jumps on a grenade for his fellow soldiers. Uh, maybe it's um, somebody who, even now as we're in the COVID crisis, you have dirt not, uh, nurses and doctors who, who are on the front lines and, and potentially giving their lives for others. Well, see, that's what Jesus did. And yes, it was God's will to crush him. But Jesus gave it of his own free will as well. He gave it accordingly. 
And so what we see at this point is he gave, uh, it was the will, when his soul made an offering for guilt. His soul made an offering for guilt. Whose guilt? His guilt? No. See, Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. I know that's incredible, maybe unbelievable. When we look at our own lives, we look at every white lie we've told. Every time we saw the speed limit say speed limit 70 and we pumped it to 75 or 80. Every time that we have lusted in our hearts, it's all sin. Every one of us has sinned exponentially. Jesus never did. And that is why he could be this guilt offering. Back in chapter 52, verse 15, it says, So shall he, the servant, Jesus, sprinkle many nations. In the Old Testament, God set up an, a sacrificial system. This sacrificial system temporarily took away the people's sins. They would take an innocent lamb, they would slaughter it, and take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Jesus is the permanent fixture of that. Jesus was the ultimate guilt sacrifice to where when, when, when he died on that cross and took all of the sin, all of our wickedness, all of our iniquities, as the Bible says, on himself, he became that guilt offering to where when God looks at people, when God looks at saved individuals, he doesn't see their sin, but he sees Jesus's righteousness. My friends, that is the greatest news that we could ever have. The greatest news. And that really kind of um, segues us into kind of this idea of, so what for us? What does Jesus's taking our sin, going through all of this, what does this result for us? Well, let's look at a couple things that this passage says. Verse 5 uh, tells us that we can have peace with God. Without Jesus' sacrifice, we would not be able to have peace with God. Through this, we can. Verse 4 tells us that He took our grief. He carried our sorrows. Uh, he took our iniquity. He placed it on Himself. My iniquity isn't my own anymore. Jesus took it. By His anguish and suffering and knowledge, we shall be made righteous. Verse 11. He bore our iniquities also in verse 11. He bore our sins. And verse 12 of chapter 53 tells us that he intercedes on our behalf. He is our, he mediates on our behalf and, and mediates to God on our behalf. Incredible. Incredible. So the question after all of that, and yes, we're trying to keep this pretty brief, so no, we didn't do that passage complete justice. But the, the question for us is, so what? So what? I mean, what does it really matter to you or for you that some guy who lived 2,000 years ago died on the cross? Well, as we saw in this passage, this guy who died on the cross, Jesus, was unique. He was unique because on him, all sin, past, present, and future, was laid. You see, our sin has a penalty. The Bible in Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages, or the payment, or the just fruits, for the wages of sin is death. Our sin results in death. Physical, spiritual, 
It's eternal. Eternal punishment and separation from God. And no, that's not a fun topic. No, it's not one I like to really talk about. But the reality is, it's the truth. It's what God says. But the greatest news for us is the next part of that same verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through, Jesus's, through Jesus Christ's sacrifice, He offers us the free gift of eternal life. You're like, well, Phil, that sounds pretty great. Uh, how do I get that? Do I have to be really good? Do I have to do this and that? Do I have to come to your church? Hey, we'd love to have you at church, but no, that's actually not going to do anything for you. In fact, there's no amount of good that you can do. And this is something that separates biblical Christianity from really every other world religion. There is no amount of good that you can do or I could do to come to God. In fact, if I try to get to God on my own by working, I'm not going to get there. Bible in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He says what? You can be saved by grace through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. If you could do something to earn a gift, it makes it not a gift. It's something you have earned. This is a free gift that God offers. You say, well, what do I need to do? And really, it's extremely difficult in one sense and extremely simple on another. The Bible says you must repent. What does repent mean? Repent means turning. So turning from how you're going and turning and doing a 180. Stop relying on yourself and relying on God. Throw your hands up and say, God, I am a sinner. I have lived my life for self. I've lived my life for stuff. I've lived my life for everything but you. And turn to God. It means taking your faith and your trust for this life and for the next and placing it in Jesus alone. Call out to God. Tell him, I am a sinner. I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I am all in with you. That's what it is. The hard part is we don't like that. We like to rely on ourselves. Phil likes to rely on Phil. But that only is going to get me so far. And it's not going to get me to God. The Bible says, again, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, God knows our hearts. If I could get to God on my own, what would be the first thing I would do about it? I'd brag. I'd brag. That's what we are. That's what we are. Our tendency is to do as sinners to lift ourselves up over other people. God says, "No, it's not about what you do. It's about what I did." Jesus's death was not in vain. Jesus's death was not his greatest failure, his biggest moment of weakness. In fact, it was the most loving thing that he could do. Now, the great news is that he didn't stay dead. And Easter Sunday morning, we, we celebrate what happened that day. He rose again to life eternal and gives us hope that we can as well. And when you see what happened when, when people saw the risen Lord, how it changed their lives, it's phenomenal. People have got, went from fear to you couldn't scare them. 
because they knew what eternity was about. So this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've put your faith and trust in Him, read through these verses. Think about that suffering. Praise Him. Thank Him for the fact that He took all of your sin, He placed it on His shoulders, and now you are declared righteous through His sacrifice. And then this morning, if you have never done that, if you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus alone, let today be that day. Let today be the day that's not just a celebration of the best Friday ever, but for you, it can be the second best Friday ever. Call out to God. Tell Him, I am a sinner. I place my faith and trust in you alone. He will. He will save you. Our God is faithful and just to, to keep His promises. Jesus did the most loving thing He could possibly do that Good Friday, that best Friday ever, when He sacrificed Himself on the cross. Let's worship Him today for that. Hope you have a great rest of your great Friday, and may it be your best Friday ever. Thanks. Oh, I feel so...